Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions church in Boise, Idaho, The Bread of Life. If you're looking for a place to give to that's taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism throughout the world, I'd ask you to consider Church Partnership Evangelism. On a daily basis, we're working with pastors in Asia, Africa, and South America, equipping them and directing them into engagements in the gospel with lost people. And God is blessing, and the churches in these places are growing. You can learn more about how God is using us by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. We're in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, we've learned that God will judge people based on the knowledge of right and wrong that they have, not on what they don't know. In Romans chapter 2, verse 13, we're told that knowledge must be followed by action. God will justify only those who do what he commands. Today, we begin by explaining why this is not teaching a salvation by works. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So here in this passage, this can be confusing for people, but Paul is just stating a truth. He's just bringing forward a truth. What he doesn't do in this passage is reveal the active application of the truth, how that truth is played out in the life of men. He's just declaring a truth here. He's later gonna show us how that truth is played out in the life of human beings in Romans chapter three, and there he's gonna reveal that no one has faithfully kept the law. No one has. You wanna be just before God, basically saying, keep the law perfectly. You want to be just before God, just keep the law that you know, that you're knowledgeable of perfectly. If you want to be just before God to the Jew, just keep all of the law that God has given you perfectly. Be a keeper of the law, not just someone who's hearing it. And, but then Paul will reveal in Romans chapter 3 that no one's done that. You'll see that other authors in the New Testament have said the same type of thing. Here's what James says in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says this. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Whoever will keep all the law but stumble in one point is guilty of all. I'll give you a couple illustrations now of when I was a little boy. This came to my mind the other day. I, I was a little boy and I was in the bathtub. Loved Saturday night baths. Those were always great, right? And so I had all my toys in there and I had some little sharp toys that were like tanks that were underwater tanks, believe it or not, and we were having our little battle in there, and I had taken one of them because there was an explosion during the middle of the battle, and one of them flew into the glass divider that was along the bathtub, and it hit that glass divider, and it broke it. And the moment it broke it, something shocking happened. It didn't just break in that one spot. The whole panel shattered, and shards of glass came pouring in, to the bathtub upon that 10-year-old little boy. When you break the law, it doesn't matter where you break it. When you break the law, the, the shards of the broken law, all of it become shattered, and it all comes following down upon you just like that. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is not where Paul gets to in verse 13, but this is what he's setting up here. He's giving us this statement in verse 13, but he's setting up the things that he's going to say in Romans chapter 3. 
He's going to set up the same thing, basically, that he says here in Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, to keep them, all of them. Cursed if you don't keep all of them. That's the underpinning argument here. Give you another illustration from when I was a young boy. I went with my father as he was sharing the gospel with a neighbor. We were sitting in the neighbor's front yard in a picnic table, and I was listening to my dad as he was engaging this man in the gospel, and my dad said to him, Moss, he said, there are two ways for you to get to heaven. Now, that got my attention. Two ways to get to heaven. I know that I know the song we sang in church. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? I know that Jesus is the only way. He's the door, and Dad is wrong here. And what do I, should I speak up? Should I correct him? But Dad went on with his thought. Dad said, Moss, if you keep the commandments of God perfectly throughout your whole life, and you never deviate and never fall short, you will climb the rope to heaven. And and Moss, that would be plan A. So Moss, let me ask you, how are you doing? Moss's response was, well, plan A is out. What's plan B, right? So, well, Moss, then the only hope for you or for any person is plan B because the Bible says all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Dad opened the Bible and showed it to him. And Moss, what you need to understand is that Jesus came and lived out all the requirements of plan B. He is the only one who has kept perfectly and completely the law of God. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore all the righteous punishment of the law against himself. Jesus has completed the law in two ways, Moss. He's completed the law in that he's fulfilled all of its requirements in obedience, and full obedience to it. And he's also fulfilled the law in that he received upon himself all the curse of those who break it. And he did that for us. He did that for us, so and here's plan B. So that if we'll put our faith completely and totally in him, we can be forgiven of all of our sins, knowing that he's paid the price, and so that then in him he might put upon us by faith all of his goodness and all of his righteousness, so that we can stand in the presence of a righteous God covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Moss, what you have to do is you have to now decide that you can't save yourself. You have to be certain that plan A is completely out of the factors for you, you have to put all of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, now, that's where Paul is going in this statement in verse 13. That's the groundwork, a preliminary statement is leading to that conclusion that Paul is going to take us to in Romans chapter 3. I want you to note another thing here, though. Paul, while he's saying this, speaks of being, do you see this in verse 13? He speaks of being just or righteous in the sight of God. When we share the gospel with individuals, oftentimes we tend to communicate the gospel in a way that helps the individual get rid of the burden of their guilt and the regrets that they have in their life and the stains they have in their life, promising to them this better self for themselves so that they can be made right by God through Jesus Christ. But this little phrase, just in the sight of God, shows us what is the greatest matter of concern when we speak of being made right or being justified. And the greatest matter of concern is that all of this is for God's sake. It's God's great concern. It's God's great desire. God wants to make us sinful individuals right in his sight 
so that he can receive us unto himself. The whole design of being made right or being cleansed of our sin is not so that you can just get on your way, not so that you can have a better day, so that a righteous God who loves you can receive you unto himself. So a God whose eyes are such that he cannot even look upon sin can look upon us and delight in us as his creatures and he's made and receive us to himself. And therefore God has given his son to come and bear our sins, to pay the price for our sins, and his son to come and live out the righteousness we fail to do, in order that he might wash us and cleanse us and cover us with his righteousness, so that he might receive us unto himself. Justification is not first for your sake. It's for his sake. It's for his desire and for his delight. It's that God might fulfill this loving desire in you. Now let's go to verse 24. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now Paul is getting to that argument that was made that, well, you've got to let these people free and you can't say God is going to judge them because they're ignorant. Paul is basically saying the reason that ignorance is not a defense for people is because people are not as ignorant as you think. They're just not as ignorant as you think. They might not know the law of God as given in the scriptures of the Ten Commandments, but God has created human beings as moral beings. And God has, as a part of our humanity, put into our minds a common knowledge of basic right and wrong. Every society of man proves this point. You can go into any society and you'll find that they have understandings and an idea of honesty. They have an understanding of what it is that they're not supposed to steal or take other people's possessions. They have an understanding of the sin of idolatry. They have ideas of modesty. They have prohibitions against and they have a prejudice against those who are arrogant and prideful. And anyhow, you can look at it and you'll find that this is reflected in every human society. Now listen, it's not perfect. They don't break out their laws in the way in which they engage one another with a perfect and clear way in every aspect of the natural law, but it's there. Latent within human nature and with human beings, God has scribed this moral sense and this moral understanding. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33, there's a prophecy that's given of the new covenant that God will one day accomplish in his people. And this is what it says. Speaking of that day when God will bring a new covenant to his people, it says, but this is the covenant God says that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law on their minds, I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this promise is a promise that is fulfilled in us when we're born again and receive new life. And that moment, God comes and lives with us, and he writes deeply into our very being and into the core of our natures, his design and his will and his purposes and his laws. But that's not, this new covenant is not what Paul is referring to in verse 14. He's not referring to somehow that these elements of the new covenant are already at play and happening in the lives of people in the farthest regions of the world and in the darkest communities that have never heard of the law of God or never read the, their Bibles and don't know anything of the commands that God gave on Mount Sinai. That's not what's being discussed here. What instead Paul is saying is basically in every place there is, and among all people, there is a work of the law. Do you see it says there? It says the work of the law is in them. And the work of the law is to restrain us with a knowledge of right and wrong. 
is to draw some lines in the sand so that we don't go too far in how we live our lives. There's got to be some rules. Without those rules, there's no restraint and we'll just catapult into complete chaos. And it, the work of the law is to also compel us into certain duties by some basic knowledge of right and wrong. But in essence, that's what the moral law is. God has given a moral law to individuals in order to restrain the worst chaotic expressions of their life. God has given a moral law to individuals so that their societies have some level of order so that we can function and that our societies and our lives don't collapse in around us. But that is not the same as what's being discussed in Jeremiah 31, 33, where we have this picture of the new covenant. What we do have is we have a restraining knowledge of right and wrong. We just have the natural law. We have the natural law. We have an orderly direction for ourselves and the right things that we, to some extent, coded within our own natures. But what we don't have is a deep love for that law. What we don't have is the abiding power within us to keep that law. And that's what you have when you're born again. The Spirit of God brings to us, through the life of Jesus Christ, a love and exaltation in the law of God. And the Spirit of God brings to us, through the life of Jesus Christ, a power and enabling to live out that law. That's what Jeremiah is promising there. But you see here, basically, what we're just saying here is Paul is saying that we have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Societies know this. The knowledge of good and evil began in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and all their race after them have some knowledge still today of good and evil. It is with that knowledge that we may reveal to individuals their sins and their need for a Savior. Thanks for listening to the Bread of Life today. To learn more about our ministry to take the gospel around the world and how you can help us, go to traincpe.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.